Let us pray. God, we give thanks that you have gathered us and you have given us your word. And we pray that by the power of your faithful living spirit, you would speak a fresh word, a word of life, love, conviction, strength. Through this, your word read and your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. Faithful God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing a fall sermon series through the book of Acts. Two weeks ago, we, we saw how this book, which is in many ways the second part of the Gospel of Luke, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and then this book of Acts, and two weeks ago we saw how Jesus had instructed the disciples to gather in one place and await the promised Holy Spirit that would come upon them with power, that they might be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Last week we saw as the disciples they continue to gather in one place and they're, and they're praying constantly that, that the promise is delivered and the spirit is poured out upon the disciples and, and actually a whole bunch of Jewish people gathered from every language and ethnicity and they're given the gift of speaking and hearing in ways they could all understand. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 of the book of Acts, they, they tell of some of the remarkable growth of the church as, as God's deeds and love and might are proclaimed and spoken of, as healings happen, as people gather around prayer and food and fellowship. But then you get to Acts chapter 5, and there is a notable turn, halt, from all of that joyful growth. We hit today's story that's this story of warning about the kind of thing that kills the church's strength and joy and growth. And as we'll see in the reading, it's not persecution or family or financial hardship. One final thing before I read the passage. The Spirit took me in a little different direction after the bulletins were already printed. For the, so for the second week in a row, as I explained to the choir, there is a falsehood in the bulletin. That sermon title doesn't work for what's coming. Uh, it's a great turn of phrase by John Steinbeck that I'm sure will work another time. But uh, at this point, I think that clap, stomp, shuffle, shout is probably the sermon title. Hear now God's word, Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came forward in, they they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember when I first wanted to learn to play the piano. And I quickly grew impatient with the scales and putting my left hand and my right hand together, even with the simplest of songs. This was around my freshman year of college. And so what I did is I had a friend teach me four really cool sounding chords that could work together. And I would sit down around the campus at different pianos from time to time and I would play my four Really great sounding chords. I liked how they sounded. And if I'm honest, I didn't mind giving off the impression to those who might overhear that that maybe I knew a little bit about music. Wasn't half bad. Wonder what else he knows. Nothing. Nothing would be the answer. Not at all. I knew my four chords. I made it sound like I was much more than I actually was. And it was a small deception, a fairly innocent deception, even one I admitted to forthrightly when people pressed about my piano skills. But I do also confess that some of my motivation came from that same spot as Ananias and Sapphira, who very much make a decision to appear a little better than they really are. We read this story about how Ananias and Sapphira, this couple, they sell their property so that proceeds can be given to those in need. It's a practice we see other property owners doing in the church if we turn back to Acts chapter 4. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they give some of the proceeds and they hold back some for themselves. And that in and of itself doesn't seem to be the root problem. The problem, you heard, is articulated by Peter who somehow figures out something's going on. He says, why has the Holy Spirit, why has Satan, sorry, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? How is it you've contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Peter's not calling them out so much for for withholding some of the proceeds but most fundamentally about lying about it and lying to God about it. They've presented the proceeds before the apostles' feet as if that is everything. How generous, wow. But it's not true. It's, it's a deception. They kept some. John Stott, the well-known Anglican preacher, 
of London, England. He comments on this passage. Ananias and, and Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. They want the appearance of being remarkably generous without the full substance of actually being remarkably generous, at least not in the way they're putting forward. They want a reputation for being better than they actually are. Now, true, they still give a bunch of money to the poor, probably more than most in the church could give if they sold property. And perhaps we're inclined to write off their deception since there are obviously far worse things going on in the world. In fact, one could argue that we all of the time do write off the little deceptions that make us perhaps a bit more than we really are. I was listening to this story on NPR last month where they were interviewing Rick Clark, the admissions director for the undergraduate school at Georgia Tech. And they're talking about what the college application process looks like these days and how so many students are inevitably applying to so many schools with the pressure to get in the right school and a good school. And and Clark said one of the things they are seeing more and more of are parents calling and emailing the office pretending to be the child who's applying. The parents are trying to show that the child has, quote, demonstrated interest, which everyone knows the admission office loves. And what's a little deception if your child is not actually going to show demonstrable interest themselves? And so Clark, on the show, he reads an email he had had just received before the interview. I was impressed by GT's beautiful campus and its close proximity to so many athletic teams and facilities in Atlanta. I look forward to speaking with someone from the business school. Thanks again for taking time to meet with us on Saturday, and thanks for the awesome t-shirt. He goes on to explain that awesome and cool are always the dead giveaway. One mom, he said, had called just the week before, trying to sound like her daughter, not just in in language, but pitch and tone and all the rest. He said it kind of worked for about 15 minutes until she started inadvertently speaking in the third person. Now, what if she, what if I, what if I wanted to? Bottom line, the key things to get into the school. The name of that school can declare upon the student, even on the family, you're smart or you're athletic, or you're a person of character, of repute. Even if in substance we've made a small deception, a small shortcut that makes us look better than. Perhaps we actually are. And it's a prevalent kind of move in in, in our society that we're talking about this on, on the show. Because consciously or not, many have decided, well, goodness, in the scheme of things, they're good families. They're good kids. Doing a lot of good, actually, in the world. What is a little deception that's going to work out for all of us anyway? So what? If I, if I do this or don't do this, or purchase that, or purchase this, or affiliate with this, or that, or say that about myself, but withhold that. I mean, so what a few little things here and there that make us look a little smarter, or stronger, or holier, or generous. Ananias and Sapphira, it's a little deception. It's a little half-truth. It's a 
spin on the truth. And it's not that bad because they're also doing good things. Ananias and Sapphira are dead within moments of their deception being discovered. And the passage just makes us sit with that as we watch two bodies carried out in front of our eyes. Now the passage does not say God killed them or Peter killed them or their lie killed them. The passage is actually entirely silent on what exactly takes their life. But the story is remembered by the early church because it makes clear the gravity of the situation. A little deception is not a little matter. It was a little lie, after all, that sent so much unraveling in the Garden of Eden. There was a recent study done at Duke University entitled, Why We Lie. And the researchers readily saw how frequent sort of little white lies are throughout society, but also how dangerous. The researchers, they state at one point that we as a society must, quote, discourage the small and more ubiquitous forms of dishonesty because, they go on, because of what our research has shown about the contagious nature of cheating. In the way that a small transgressions can grease the psychological skids to larger ones. The small ones, the no big deal ones, they grease the psychological skids for the ones we eventually hear about. And honestly, if we think back over these recent years and we look at some of the major political leaders, Hollywood figures, pastors... who have had to step down from significant roles of leadership or influence. Those have not happened because suddenly their competence for the position has been found wanting. How often it was some lie, some deception, some cover-up, where for a while the four chords sounded really good. But sound and substance turned out not to be one in the same. One wonders where the psychological skids were first greased far before the headlines that we're all aware of. And now it's easy, of course, to point fingers to some of the things we see and read about. But Acts 5 wants to make pointedly clear that the great threat to us, the church, is really, it's not most fundamentally famine or persecution or governments or financial strain or or some of the things the church inevitably encounters even later in Acts. No, the first thing that gets raised in Acts that is the great danger at the inception of something beautiful are small deceptions. The death of every Edenic hope. I mean, how does Jesus put it? Those who seek to save their life will lose it. Those who seek to promote their life, lift up their life, deceive a little so as to lift their well-being in the eyes of others, those who seek to save their life will lose it. Maybe not today or tomorrow or in ten years, but there will be a falling, a failing, a dying. But, Those who lose their life for my sake, they will find it. It, It's not spelled out in our 11 verses of Acts here, but there is another way, a way opposite of Ananias and Sapphira. 
fast forward to a couple of years ago, and I decided to pick up piano lessons again. The other day in particular, Randall, my teacher, he is helping me learn a couple measures of a very simple worship song. And yet there is, there is something about the rhythm I can not get. My left hand, my right hand will not pull together and make this thing happen. So Randall goes, okay, stand up. If you can't put the rhythm into your body, you can't play the rhythm. I want you to clap in your right hand, the, your, your, both your hands, the right hand rhythm. And then I want you to stomp, walk forward, the left hand rhythm of this melody. Clapping, stomping. And then I want you to say aloud with your mouth how to properly count this measure. We are going to walk in circles around this room until you get it. So here I am, dress slacks, dress shirt, day of meetings, phone calls. And now, clap, stomp, shuffle, because I keep tripping and worried I'm not hitting it right. One, and two, and one, and three, and four, one. I notice halfway around the room, I am thinking so hard, my body's bent over, my eyes are closed, It was such an awkward, slow, humbling journey around the room. Randall walking beside me the whole time, filling in the counts I kept missing. And yet the true steps of what makes for an actual piano player, not the four-chord fraud. How often we would like grand chords of generosity, of mission work, of save the day, compassion, and times of dire crisis to maybe be the narrative of what our church is about, what our life as followers of Jesus are about. But to lose your life for Jesus' sake is to walk humbly with God, as Micah 6, 8 puts it, walking The idea that we really are putting the faith in our body in small, awkward, shuffling ways day by day. And is not this how we have been saved? Did not Jesus put the rhythm that is love in his very body and live it day by day, humbled unto the point of the cross for our sake? And was he not raised? And does he not this day pour out that same love upon us that we might work out in our own bodies that love, that forgiveness, that justice, that generosity. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul puts it. What is the step the Spirit is calling us to today? It may be small, it may be awkward, it may be an almost unnoticed sound. They often are, but what is the nudge the Spirit has upon our heart for the way love is looking to be worked out? Clap, stomp, shuffle, shout until finally... My body did work out the rhythm. 
that was already there. At which point, Randall did let me go back to the piano. And it was stunning to watch my fingers, left hand and right hand. They found the notes and they found the rhythm. And I played the simple two measures, the lyrics of which go, Bless the Lord, O my soul, worship his holy name. Those who seek to save and lift and promote their life, they will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake, those who walk humbly, those who will put the rhythm into their body day by day, those willing to look foolish for the sake of the gospel, they will find their life. And a new song, a genuine song, will play forth from the body of Jesus Christ. Amen.